Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I lost a sense of direction because I just took on so much work. Direction became something that was like a luxury for me to think about, which is an incredibly dangerous place to be as an executive. And it's really easy to fall into it, especially when there's a fire hose of work that's coming at you all the time. And then I had like morphed my life around work versus around my health. And I realized I, like the thing that had led me to have so much mental clarity before was my health. And so I started taking health incredibly seriously again. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the Engineering Leadership Community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. It's been a wild year for Vinay Hiramath, co-founder and CTO at Loom. Loom just reached 1 billion minutes recorded on their platform. Their team scaled like crazy, and Vinay took on roles uncommon for most engineering leaders in his position, like interim VP of people and interim CEO while his co-founder took time off for parental leave. In this episode, we debrief how Vinay balanced three high-level executive roles, the lessons from each that have now changed his approach to leading engineering at Loom, how he scaled his leadership, and ultimately, how he achieved the best physical and mental well-being of his life throughout all of this. Vinay shares some of the strategies and systems that have worked for him, including some things like how to build out your schedule and expand your working capacity, how to uncover and leverage your values as gatekeepers, setting up delegation systems in your organization, powerful journaling frameworks for identifying values and goals, how your values inspire better health, and Vinay shares his process for building and keeping new habits. Buckle up, because this conversation is an extremely liminal ride in all the best ways, phasing between philosophy, psychology, the metaphysical, and extremely tactical systems and processes. Enjoy our conversation with Vinay Hiramath. Well, Vinay, first off, we just want to say welcome to the show. It's so great to, to see you again. How's everything going? How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing the best physically and mentally like in my life right now than I ever have done in the past. So you're on a call with me at the best of the best, which I mean, as a founder, like you go through the best of the best and the worst of the worst a lot. But I feel like generally in my life right now, I have like a pretty strong sense of purpose. I have all my health foundations. My life revolves around my health foundations. And that's been like something that's been sparked by a pretty rough period in our company's history where I was putting in a lot of work and in the company overall on the macro environment we're going through, a whole bunch of things were kind of rocky footing and I've lost those foundations. Um, and it's potentiated by a psychedelic trip I did May of 2021. It ended up taking almost a full year to process it, including that rough period. And so mm -hmm. I'm finally on the other end of that. And I feel like I'm on this virtuous, like upward cycle for mental health and physical health. And so I'm doing incredible. 
It's such a powerful way to sort of set the tone and the theme of this conversation, because I think the two main things we really wanted to dive into with you was number one, how to create that state to feel your your best, like physically and mentally, because I think so many people aspire or want to, or at least like me, I'm, I'm hearing you say that. And I'm like, I'm craving that. Like, I would love to feel that. And I think the other side of it, though, is this is also in the middle of a outwardly, like an hour, I would outwardly label this like a pretty crazy time at Loom for a couple reasons. And so I just want to give a quick context walk up from what I've seen from the outside and would love for you to kind of bring us into what had been going on. But as an outsider, my understanding of what had been going on is it seemed like you personally had to really rapidly scale both yourself and your leadership within Loom from being the co-founder and CTO to then also support as the interim head of people. And then on top of that, then serve as CEO while your co-founder was on parental leave. Like, did I get that right? Can you walk us through a little bit about that experience and, and what that's been like? Yeah, that, that's all right. Um, that, that's all correct. The straddling of the CTO and the VP people position was one that was particularly trying. I think, first of all, the VP people position at any technology company, especially over the last couple of years we've been through, is an incredibly difficult position. I, I have so much empathy for people leaders now because it's like your job is basically to have everybody's problems roll up to you. And you're creating systems to deal with these problems, right? People don't know how to deal with their own problems in their own life. And so a lot of times they rely on the systems that you set up at work to deal with problems that they really need to deal with in their own lives. The VP people position was basically like going from CTO, where I would con I would largely consider myself one of the best video technology experts in the world. I feel like at this point, like I do feel that way. And it's not me saying it to like feel good about myself. I just feel like that's where I've gotten on that journey. So everything that comes up to me in the CTO role, I'm like, okay, this is a cool new fun project, but I have a very solid foundation of technical expertise that helps me maneuver new problems, even if I haven't seen them. In the VP people world, it was like every single day I was going to get something wrong and not understand what my directors were trying to tell me and then have to go and understand on my own and learn every single day. Basically, I got my ass handed to me every single day on the job. That stark contrast was really hard to maneuver um, from an emotional standpoint. And then on top of that, the CTO role doesn't slow down at Loom. Loom is an extremely technical product. And so I quickly found myself putting in, you know, 80 to 100 hours a week for about seven months straight. And when I actually took over the interim CEO responsibilities, that wasn't that difficult. It was more that I just couldn't let anything slip. I can't put in more than 100 hours a week. And so it was less about like, what do I add to that? And it was more like, what do I remove? And what do I like push on other people to delegate and scale, even if they're not used to it, or they're not ready for that delegation or scale. And I got to the point where I was timetabling my day, like I started to realize, okay, like if habits are built off of like incrementally doing the same thing consistently over time and trying to get X percent better, if that's how you like actually progress, then the most atomic unit of a behavior is how you schedule out your day. And I came to this realization where I was like, oh, if I don't schedule out every 10 to 15 minutes of my day, when I was juggling three executive roles, catastrophic things will happen. Like I was already barely getting any of my weekend, but I could say goodbye to any of my weekend. You know, I eventually got into like a pretty dark place from like a mental health, physical health standpoint. I was drinking a lot again. I was, you know, smoking weed over the weekends to like get my mind off of like all the problems I was dealing with within the company. I eventually got to a point and, you know, like I, I've been told not to talk about the fact that we did layoffs, but we did layoffs and you can look it up online. Like I got to a point where like, I think that if you get to that point as a leader, you get to look around and say, okay, a bunch of people are doing this thing that really sucks. And you get to point at the people and decide what kind of a leader do you want to be? 
And I, po- I looked at the leaders that were like, we're in a macro environment and we couldn't have predicted this. And I was like, I don't want to be that kind of leader. Whichever leader I want to be, it's not that leader. And so I, I dove really deep at the end of this incredibly hard period. And I thought, what did I do in my life that allowed this to happen? And I just took ultimate responsibility. And eventually what I found is that I allowed a lot of the values that I had cared about before to slip by the wayside. I'd lost a sense of direction because I just took on so much work. Direction became something that was like a luxury for me to think about, which is an incredibly dangerous place to be as an executive. And it's really easy to fall into it, especially when there's a fire hose of work that's coming at you all the time. And then I had like morphed my life around work versus around my health. And I realized like the thing that had led me to have so much mental clarity before was my health. And so I started taking health incredibly seriously again. And there's a lot that bubbles up into that. It's not just working out. It's also like a huge part of mental health or what values do you care about? And I realized that if you're not living a life of values, you cannot have good mental health. And then there's like a catch 22 there, which we could get into later, which is like, well, how do you earn yourself the freedom to actually live a a valued life without getting fired, without like X, Y, and Z? And that's a separate conversation. But I realized that for myself, I needed to like declare my values and make sure that I was willing to lose everything from them, including my job, including all Bloom, including everything else. And that actually I wouldn't be able to secure Bloom's bright spots and accomplishments. And it does feel like Bloom is like back on an upward trajectory now. It, it's taken a while to get there. But I realized that that was not going to happen unless I was willing to lose, risk losing all of it for the sake of my values. There's a lot that's bundled into that, but health has become the central part of my life and everything else has become secondary. And I think I lost track of that. I can't help to ask, what are the values you have in the divide and how do you personalize that in your personal life, but also work life? So first of all, I had to create a logic system. One of my problems and one of the problems with many leaders is that we're, we're really stubborn and we think we know better than everybody else, even though our job shows us that that is like patently false over and over again. Like you're wrong all the time and like you have to rely on your teams and like hire people that are smarter than you, but you still end up thinking you know everything. And so for something as personal as personal values... I knew it was really important for me to come up and construct my own logic system. And so I'm going to be releasing a series of documents on like that journaling that I did on how I came to that logic system. But it goes something like this, which is that the first thing is I wanted to understand what every human's mission was. And so I had to like philosophically ask myself, am I the same as other humans? And the answer is like, yes. And if the answer there is no, you should go to therapy and understand why not. But like, if the answer is yes, then it's like, what is the ultimate human mission? And the ultimate human mission is to increase consciousness in some way, shape or form. And actually, you can't not do that. Even if you decide you don't want to do that, the way that you live your life and the way that people follow your lead in any way increases some part of human consciousness. And so then I asked myself, well, what is the atomic unit of consciousness? And I landed on the answer that it's values. And so it was really important for me to define which values I wanted to increase within human consciousness over my lifetime. And then from there, I decided to take the things that I find I'm naturally good at, or the privileges that I have in my life, the access that I have in my life, and then develop goals and strategies that align with maximizing those values in human consciousness. And so my values personally, and then I asked a bunch of questions, like, how do you limit the values? Like, do you limit the values? Like, this is like a long conversation, but essentially my values are In this order, freedom, authenticity, courage, inspiration, and kindness in that order, which means that I care more about inspiration and I care more about courage than I do about kindness. 
Um, and then I also talked about things, I, I told myself things that I thought I cared about that actually I don't care about anymore. So I thought I really cared about maximal humility. And then I realized that if I actually want maximum effect on human psychology, I need to be okay with not being humble all the time. And so like there were, there were things that came out of this that like I ended up solidifying that I've always kind of wrestled with and I never really put pen to paper. My abstract mission is to increase those values as much as I possibly can in human consciousness over my lifetime and ideally past my lifetime because my, my lifetime's minuscule. And then a bunch of goals come from that. How does that take shape in the way you work with your team? So here's one example, right? I've started posting, so fitness is like such an important part of my life. I've started posting like shirtless pics on Twitter. And I have heard from our new VP of people several times that this is causing problems for certain roommates who don't, who don't want to see those photos, right? But my ultimate value is freedom. And so I'm like, okay, as long as I'm not harming the company, as long as there is some outset for this that I believe in, which... For me, I like the thing that I'd like to do is I'd like to promote more health with especially within tech, especially within tech leaders. I look at most tech leaders and I'm like, oh my God, like you have no, you have no health. I can tell. I can, I can see the way that like your body is. And that makes sense because like this is an incredibly demanding job. Maybe you have a family, you have other competing priorities, but I want to like combat that narrative and I want to increase overall physical health and mental health as a result of that. I decided that I wanted the freedom to be able to express myself over my Twitter that way. And the way that that materializes is that if I'm going to be given that freedom, like I would give that freedom to anybody at Loom as well. I'm not saying that that doesn't come with consequences. It might. Maybe one day, like this ends up screwing up an enterprise deal for Loom. And Joe's like, hey, man, like this is just problematic at this point. You need to like roll off. Fair enough, but I'm willing to do that. And, and so like other ways that this materializes, you know, some information got shared within the company that ended up decreasing the trust other roommates had with me for a decision that I made within the people org. I won't go over the specifics because it will disclose information, like it, it will disclose information about the roommates more than it will about, I, I don't mind like telling you about all the ways that I screwed up and things. Basically, I sent a loom to the folks that were disclosing this information. I was like, look, like ultimately this is my fault. Like, ultimately, the reason that people are less trusting of myself and leadership is because I made this decision and it was an experiment and I didn't roll back the experiment. But if you continue to share this information, the result is that people will have less trust in me and I'm just giving you the information and you can do whatever you want with it. You don't have to stop sharing this information if you don't want to, because I would never like infringe on your freedom to share information. I think that's really important. But if you do, these are, the, these are the side effects. You have to be okay with that. Just so you know, like, if you do this, your job is not on the line. I don't care. It's already happening. You should take the responsibility for how it proliferates throughout the org and figure it out on your own. You could juxtapose that with a message of me being like, hey, like, stop sharing this or, like, you'll be fired. Or you should really stop sharing this because X, Y, and Z. I, I think that, like, they're only values if it's congruent completely in your life. And you can only have complete congruence of how you live your values in your life, depending on what your goals are and depending on how much freedom you actually have in your life. And you have to actually earn your freedom over time. Like, if I didn't have enough access to capital for the rest of my life to be able to retire whenever I want to, I probably can't afford to, like, post a bunch of shirtless pics on Twitter and not care if I'm going to get fired. If I haven't, like, published several patents for Loom and have, like, help the company scale through to like a billion minutes recorded on the platform and shown that I have technical prowess, I probably don't have the authority to be able to like have leverage to live my life in the full freedom that I want to. And so like there is this dichotomy of like, 
everybody is born somewhat a slave to like some set of values or systems. And you have to break out of that over time with competency. And since we live in a capitalistic market, that competency is rewarded and commiserate with how much capital people give you to allocate. And so there's these natural gatekeepers. We could go into that conversation, but the answer is that I try to live with as much congruence with my values in my work life as I do in my personal life. You only are able to get to that point with little consequence based on how much freedom you've bought yourself and you gain freedom through competency. You just have to work really, really hard or not care about making a lot of money in order to live with full congruence of your values. I think it's really interesting to hear the examples of, of what living with that degree of freedom within the company looks like, because I think for people listening into this, I'm thinking of like a lot of scenarios that a lot of folks are running into is probably like they're taking on a, a surprise new role and increased scope of responsibility. And a lot of these things sort of these challenges kind of come up unconsciously. And so what's I think interesting for me is hearing your example in a in story in a lot of ways where it's extraordinary. And then for folks to be like, okay, like some some of this I can bring into to my life in different ways. I wanted to specifically go back to the time units and sort of the first principles in which you started to think about, I now have to serve in these three roles. Nothing can get through the cracks. I have to go to the atomic unit of time. Can you talk a little bit more about how you built out that schedule to help you expand your capacity for impact, both as people, CTO, and CEO? What did that process look like? The schedule is the most important. So every every week, and you know, this will probably not be... Well, hopefully it's not new news, but if it is, then implement this immediately. If you're a leader listening to this and you don't do this, is that at the beginning of every week, you should understand the major boulders that you're trying to move over the finish line before the end of the week. And ideally, if you're a founder or you have other executives that kind of sit toe to toe with you. So let's say you're like a VP of engineering, it would be like your VP of product, maybe you want to make sure you have those check-ins week over week with your most uh, critical cross-functional partners to understand, hey, how did we do based on what we talked about? We needed to move over the finish line. It's just like any other team, except for me, it was like I was the only team. It was just me. And so, you know, like the, the difference for like maybe a CEO is that you, you don't have a lot of that back and forth. It would be your co-founder if they're able to scale to that level with you, or maybe if you're very early stage. But yeah, I, I think that it starts with looking at each week and being like, what are the major things that I think I need to move over the finish line? And then also understanding that other things are going to pop up that might be higher priority and higher urgency. And then like what you what I always do is like when things do pop up that are higher urgency or higher priority, how do I put it into a backlog to re-triage at the end of the day? Or if it's truly urgent, I hop into that right away until I have a sufficient enough amount of context to know when I can depart and pass it off to other people. And then I have to immediately re-triage instead of hopping into the work that I was in before, which is a common mistake. You have to immediately look at the work that you were doing before in the context of the new thing that popped up and be like, okay, is this new thing that popped up going to pull me back in? If it is, like, how does that change what I was doing before? And that's like a critical step you miss often. But basically, like having this system where and really is, it's a very simple to-do system. I have a column in Notion that says opportunity. And that's like the one or two things that I'm doing at any given time. There's a backlog of to-do items that stems from a higher level journal that I keep of like, what major things do I need to push over the finish line each week? And usually that's our, my founder sync notes with Joe. Me and Joe have been doing founder sync sessions every single Sunday since the beginning of the company. And then the added timetable piece, honestly, I was just thinking about school. When you're in high school or like secondary school or secondary school and primary school, they schedule out your entire day. You have like this little journal where it's like, 
hey, like from this time to this time, it's like homeroom. From this time to this time, it's lunch. And we kind of do that in our calendars, but not really. That's like more of a, like most people don't actually like schedule out every single piece of their day in their calendar. The difference here is that I created these simple timetables that just told me exactly what I was working on. Like to the point where it was like, okay, this is like a doc that needs to be generated within 20 minutes. And like, I need to send it to these people. And then this is like a period of time where I need to be getting feedback from people and I need them to know that they need to be online to get back to me as soon as possible because I can't wait for a day for them to get back to me. Like the timetable just forces intentionality of like a kernel of a task within a certain time period. But really that week by week look, I think is really important. And then obviously, as you scale up, you have your other systems around that are usually at the company level of like quarterly planning, monthly planning, yearly planning, stuff like that. But that should be embedded into the organization at that point versus one person. I think about this one quote, people don't rise to the occasion, they sink to their level of training or systems. Did you have these systems? When did these systems come into play? And was there sort of a failure point in the middle in sort of this big crucible moment? Yeah, I, I think I've always, it's a good question. I, I've always had like some form of these systems. They've evolved over time, for sure. Um, and actually, funny enough, they evolved to get more complicated and then significantly more simplified. So when people think of these systems, they're like, oh, I need these like fancy toggles and Notion and like I need like a template that just gives me everything. The truth is, is that if you're just getting high quality, high impact stuff done, like you kind of know and the simpler, the better. By the way, this is why we love using like tools like Linear at Loom over Jira. Because Jira is like a really complex tool that has a bunch of overhead burden for like project managers and engineers for the sake of visibility. Whereas the tenant of Linear is like, how do we make it as simple as possible to get the work into the system so people can go back and focus on just the work? If you're managing your own time, most people are probably not looking at your to-do list. It's only you. And so the amount of visibility that you need is commiserate with how much visibility do you need. And ideally, it's as little as possible. It should just feel natural that the strategies you're executing against feel like the right strategies. You want one cross-functional partner to like check you on that. But just do that week by week. Have a to-do list of things that you're focusing on one at a time. And then, you know, end up like if you have to end up doing a timetable. But ideally, you don't have to get to the point where you're like scheduling out every 15 minutes of your day. I, I think that was like largely a fairly miserable experience for me. So I guess thinking from the perspective of, of somebody who is about to enter into a place of like expanded scope and responsibility and are going to have to basically rethink their systems, when you look at the lessons you learned and how you were operating, are there certain lessons that are now you're now carrying with you as an engineering leader or lessons that you would recommend to engineering leaders from this experience outside of or in addition to or expanding on being really clear about your personal values prioritizing and building around health and then building around like a fundamental time unit um, and like building out your schedule as like a fundamental block. Are there other insights that have changed how you operate as an engineering leader from those experiences? One thing I, I learned tactically is that when you take on more scope, like inherently that means you need to scale more. There are a number of things that end up being really hard for people who are like scaling within a new level of scope for the first time. And then are really hard for people who have done it themselves but then aren't good at teaching that behavior to their directors and leaders. People are bad at setting up systems of delegation. An example of this is we were scaling on the people side quite a bit as we were scaling up headcount. And we ended up having to figure out when there's like a lot of these patterns and problems that your reports will bring to you where they're like, oh, we just can't do this much work. Or like the team is like always underwater. They're always underwater. They're always firefighting. 
And the first thing that, like, the first inclination for, like, a new leader that's taking over extended scope is to say, okay, what are the individual problems? Whereas instead, like, the, the thing that most leaders should focus on is what are your systems of, like, scaling out here? Like, you're telling me that there's a bunch of work that's coming in and your team's, like, running red hot. What is the nature of that work? What work are you doing? And then most importantly, what work are you doing that only you can do? And how do we make sure you do more of that work than any other type of work and get you more people under you who can do that kind of work or give you less responsibility because you don't have the means to scale out your team to handle the amount of work that your team's already trying to take on? And I think that step gets skipped. And so systems of delegation, like there are going to be a bunch of processes that your reports own that maybe they shouldn't, they should give to other people. There are going to be a bunch of tasks and work that like, they think are really high priority, but then when you globally prioritize the list of things they're doing, you realize actually it's not that high priority. Stop doing that. Let's like set expectations properly with the rest of the org and figure out how to scope down the amount of work you all are doing. So those things are recurring patterns that I definitely learned in straddling the people role. The second thing is like, there's two things that aren't utilized in engineering nearly enough. Budgets, and then like whenever there's two departments communicating, triple verification, which is the thing that you end up having to do in the people world all the time, because every system is a people system. It's not like whether or not you want to take on error. It's like, how much error do you want to take on? You know, like, how much error do you want to take on with this process today? And it will happen. Everything from like, you know, a system being hooked up automatically for deprovisioning, and then all of a sudden people know this person got let go when they shouldn't have known, to like problems of like people operations and talent thinking that they know who owns the final amount of like how much you can negotiate on salary. And actually they don't. And all of a sudden the candidate is led to believe that they're getting a lot more cash than they're actually going to get. Like I've seen all of the errors. And so triple verification is so critical. The first thing I did when I came back into the engineering world is I was just like, everybody, here's the Slack thread. Write down the things you're working on in this quarter coming up ahead of quarterly planning. Write down the things you're scared that we're not talking about. And then write down any blockers that you think you're going to have. And everybody's like, but we've already done product planning. Like, why do we need to do this? And I'm like, because you did product planning in your own little like silos and you have no idea what other people are thinking. We ended up finding 50 different, like, I'm not even kidding, 50 or 60 different misalignment points between all of the EMs. And we were able to get ahead of that before the quarter started. Triple verification is incredibly important. Another thing is like triply, like within budgets, how much error are you willing to take on within the system? I think a lot of engineers chalk up like observability dashboards and they're like, oh, well, we know like our SLAs or SLOs. Yeah, of course, like we know when errors rise, but how many of those errors are acceptable? And like, you have to do this within people because like everything is driven by finance. It's like, if you run out of money, you run out of money. It, it doesn't matter. If, you, if a system goes down in engineering, you lose things. The opportunity cost of time now in order to not lose things in the future is different than the opportunity cost of implementing something now, knowing that it's going to cost real dollars. I think it's really important that engineers like apply budgets to a lot of things that they do. How do you want to use like the kernel of a budget to help you think about how much trust you have or how much you think you trust a system. And then within that system, it's like not only a production system, how much you think you trust like your regression systems? How much you think other people trust your team? Like how buggy is your system? Like are there people in other teams that are like, oh man, like this team ships stuff and it just always breaks our shit. So we can't trust that team. And now there's like these cultural ripple effects. I think budgets are incredibly important. And it's something that I really didn't realize until 
I spent more of my life in Google Sheets and Excel than I care to want to ever spend again in my life. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Can you share the like triple verification process one more time? Yeah. So here's an example, right? We have engineering leaders listening to this. TCP handshake. I'm about to send something. Sin. The server's like, okay, like I've acknowledged that you're about to send something. Ack. And then the client's like, okay, I've acknowledged that you have now acknowledged that you're about to send, that I'm about to send something. Sin. Ack. And then I'm going to start sending the data. This three-way handshake just doesn't happen in people systems and engineering. And so you get a bunch of issues. Like it, it, there's like a bunch of integrity issues. And so um, another example of this is like, let's say that you're like, this might be something that's timely for a lot of companies. Let's say that you're right-sizing your headcount planning because you're like, oh, like, I don't know if we're going to have enough cash to scale at the, at the rate that we wanted to before. Now, all of a sudden you have to introduce, let's just scope it to engineering. Let's say you're the head of engineering. It's engineering, finance, and your people leader. Within your people leader, there's like the talent team that's working against a headcount planning sheet that they think is the actual headcount planning sheet, but you can't tell them that you're working on a new one because then all of a sudden they're going to freak out thinking about, well, are we doing layoffs? And so there's like information asymmetry. You now have a situation where there are sub teams that are working off of incorrect information that is continually being disverified, and you are trying to come up with a new version of reality. It is really important that each round that you make, that you triply verify that all the teams around the, around the circle understand, okay, this is a new headcount. This is a new criteria that we're using for the headcount planning process. Okay, we are like reducing this amount of headcount within sales in order to make, amount, make this amount of headcount within engineering. Like you should triply verify between finance and the two cross-functional leaders every single time and make sure that people is driving that triple verification process. So like that's another example of a system where you should probably triply verify and make sure everybody's on the same page because I guarantee you they won't be because what's happening is that your VP of sales might've said yes and you document the decision somewhere, but then they're going off trying to like hit this giant quota during a period where you have a ton of headwinds in the market. And so then they forget. And now all of a sudden there's like a bunch of like miscommunication and issues that pop up in this process that's already really arduous and hard and so it's better to triply verify every single step of the way until you get to a shared sense of reality. And I think that people miss out on that because they view it as inefficient when really like you catch a ton of inefficiencies across the way. It's way more painful. It's way slower, but you end up getting to the end goal much faster. It's just hard to see it in the moment. Very consistent to see team to team, company to company, people are worried about over communicating, which in reality, they're so far away from that. And that's emphasize all that reality of not even near enough to do communication. That itself just needs to be reminded repeatedly to almost every team, every team member. And that's a very good example of the triple verification. Like people are worried about spending too much time versus actually they're not doing enough. Yeah, I mean, at least at Loom, what we found, and I'd give us like a C job, maybe a C minus, we found that we continue to iterate on, you know, day C or like these project management frameworks of like who's driving, who's who's accountable, like who's a, who's the approver, who's the contributor, who, who should be involved. 
I find that that contributor and involved piece is where people feel like they're over communicating, where they just like, they're involved in all these project work streams that they don't need to be, or it's like unclear who's actually driving it forward. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, we're over communicating. It's like, no, you're just like being given a bunch of information that you don't care about. And then you don't want to tell people you don't care about it because like then you'll hurt their feelings. And so like I also find that roles and responsibilities is like such a critical. It's the thing that for sure we still need to work on at Loom. I'm in like two project streams right now where like I, I'm probably going to have to follow up and be like, hey, just a reminder, like these are the people that are driving it because it's starting to feel like we're losing that like touch with reality. I agree, like over communication is super important, but also like what you're communicating and who critically important as you scale up. And I think that like we have a Slack problem where people just get like messages all day and they're like, I'm so tired of it. Like, why do I need to communicate more? Like, I just want to get my work done. I'm like, my reaction, Vinay, to, to a lot of the stories, like, is this almost, you've been on the executive hero's journey where like you've gone to the underworld and have seen a different way of being and that you've returned like a change. But it's like the engineering leader's odyssey almost and that you're coming back and like telling us stories of like a whole different reality and world and way of operating. It's been really exciting to hear the impact that that's had on you, how you've applied it. I want to dive into the CEO side of things. Were there elements of that experience that have impacted how you approach leading engineering? You know, not not really, to be honest. Like, I think the CEO thing was just the point. That was the point at which I needed to timetable my days. Like, basically what came out of that is me remembering back to middle school, like those little binders and being like, okay, this is the homework I have for today. I wish I had like a, a deeper answer, but I think that the CEO thing was more like, it was the case where it was literally so much work that I was like, okay, like I need to timetable my day. You can get away. I guess the one silver lining there is that you can get away as long as you have like a good to-do list and good hygiene week over week. And hopefully this is like somewhat of a relief to people who don't like to just document all the time, which is most people. It's like you can get away with just like good weekly system help and minimal overhead and get your shit done without having to get to the point where you're timetabling every single like 15 minutes of your day. So that's probably the biggest thing that I learned. You know, I learned a lot of things that come from that. I mean, there's a lot of logical fallacies people tell themselves. They don't have enough time. They don't have the right systems. People tell themselves they want to compete in a certain arena, but they, they don't have enough like natural talent or it's going to take too long. When like in reality, like most people are not competing anywhere near a level where talent actually even makes a, a dent of a difference compared to how much hard work you need to put in. There's like a bunch of correlations to this, but I'd say that, yeah, the CEO role, it was only a month. We have an awesome executive team. And if any of our execs are listening right now, like they'll know that, you know, I'm not some messiah that came from like the underworld of VP people, CTO, and like, came back like an exact God. Like I make terrible decisions or like suggestions all the time. And I have an amazing exact team that like pushes me on those. And so that's like a big component of this as well. It wasn't too much additional work. It, it was, I guess it was interesting to be like pushing execs and DMs, like from a standpoint that like Joe usually takes, but even then, they all knew that Joe was coming back in a month anyway. It's not like open discourse that I haven't had with executives before. There's kind of like a broader social stigma around men taking parental leave. And when I think about like the moment of when this happened, like it's sort of in this like big inflection point where there's a lot of crazy stuff going on with the, the market or even just being COVID. And with Loom being essentially like a crucial essential tool for remote teams operating like it also seems like there's this layer of like critical time for the company and ceo taking parental leave and you all made a decision to prioritize giving your co-founder time to take 
to spend with family, which like shatters against like this stigma against men taking time off for parental leave and things like that. And so I was just wondering if you could bring us into like, how did the conversation and how you prepared for like that, that pass off Just thinking of like, for future parents making that decision and facing that conversation within a company would love to get your perspective on that. Yeah, the first thing I'll say is I'll give my perspective, but I'm nowhere near like I'm not a qualified person. The only qualifications I have are within the Loom context for this specific example, because I have no kids. Whatever I say is kind of like, you know, huge grain of salt there. What, what I would say, though, is that me and Joe, there were a few things that were going to be obvious. One was that Joe was going to be doing very little work within the first month of them having the kid. Like, it's all going to be Maggie, his wife. And so really, he's there to like support Maggie. And that's not a full-time job. So I'm just going to like, I'm going to admit that up front. There were days where Joe would text me because he was like, dude, I'm so bored. Like the baby's like very easy. She's like, Margot's like an amazing kid. She's like not crying. Maggie's taking care of her. And I was like, do not log into Slack. And the main reason for that was actually more so that we could show the rest of Lumates that they can take their paternity leave, like when they, when they have it, and that it's okay to. It was really more of like a setting example thing that I thought was really like Joe wanted to be at work, but he, he decided to take this parental leave because he was like, if I do this now, it shows that like, this is like an actual perk that we give people. And when we give people perks, they're not empty perks. It's like, you should take it if we offer it. And if we're not a lot, if we're not willing to do that, we should just roll back the perk. Why like have this situation where we're not actually willing to do something, which will, I'll, I'll save my rant about unlimited vacation time, which we have, which I'm not, I'm not a big fan <laughs> of, but I'll save my rant for that. I'm not trying to make Christy or a new VP of people's life any harder. Well, I appreciate you appreciate you giving us insight into that conversation and in the rationale for, for why. I'd love to talk about like the balancing of wellness because we started off this whole conversation and where you were like, I'm doing the best I've ever done mentally, physically, and that's an aspirational state that people want to be in. So when I hear that, I'm like, I want to know how you did that. And so you mentioned the moment where you made the decision where this was going to become a priority and it was going to become a foundational part of you as a leader, as a human being. Can you bring us a little bit more into to like how you've prioritized like your mental and physical well-being like I've seen some pretty incredible stories like you were sharing the story of running the, the New York half marathon unofficially running it um, and I think it was like without training like yeah. tell us a little bit more about how you balanced and prioritized mental and physical well-being and the impact of that well yeah I mean the, the first thing that I'd say is that I prioritized mental and physical well-being as like the major part of my life and so all things from here will slip to the side for it maybe the only thing that won't are when I have kids like that, that's the only thing I can really think of in my life where like, if I have a kid who's like anywhere near the amount of trouble that I was growing up, like maybe he's like at, at like the police station or something. And I'm like, okay, like, I'm not going to prioritize my workout over like going and getting my kid. And like, maybe I just have to work out tomorrow. But my entire life revolves around the health aspect. And so that is in service of living like a purposeful life. And so I think that a lot of people that don't do it, the core problem isn't actually that they don't want to be healthy. I think everybody wants to be healthy. It's that they know it's going to suck and they don't really have a reason to be healthy. Like I, I think a lot of people in today's day and age, we're like hyper-connected online. We're constantly draining our dopamine, just like scrolling through things. Like, I don't know if you guys checked any other like Slack or anything during this interview. I did. We have a little bit of a side channel going on where Jerry and I are like, okay, I think I want to ask this next one next. Like, is this cool, a good direction? So there's a little bit, but yeah, the dopamine pull is real. That's healthy. But like, I, I think that people are just constantly bombarded with information that doesn't necessarily make their mental health better. Mm -hmm. And we're at an all time high of people who are just like, the world is like bleak, things are going wrong. If you spend time on Twitter, you spend time on Instagram, even if you spend time on like Hacker News anywhere, it's like, 
overwhelmingly the information you're getting that gets to the top is negative because that's what gets the most views. You know, we live in a society where people don't feel like they have a lot to live for. They're like, okay, well, what's the next thing? I don't have purpose in what I'm doing. And so my life has completely revolved around physical and mental well-being in order to support me having a purposeful life at every single step of the way. And so that, that's a really important distinction because if you're doing it just to be healthy, I think that's like okay for a period of time when you have motivation, but motivation goes away. And so like, what is the underlying thing that gives you motivation forever? For me, that was like trying to figure out what are the values I want to live my life by? And then what are the missions that I want to accomplish in my life in order to support those values? And so, yeah, like I, I you know, ran the, the marathon, the New York marathon and like all that stuff. But all of that is like, that's in service of my other values of like courage and inspiration. Like I wanted to show other people that you can do this. And after I like tweeted about that and put it on Instagram, like a bunch of founders reached out to me and they're like, holy shit, I'm, I've been like, training for the marathon. And I was like, I've seen your Strava. You're like in better running shape than me. Just go run it. Like whatever, just go <laughs> do it, you know? And so I, I think that the health thing has become my life, but only because like I had to search for purpose. And I think a lot of people, they're just constantly flooded with information. They don't have enough time. They don't have enough time to think about what they're doing with their time. I have like eight different streaming services that I bought that I no longer use because I've replaced it with reading. It's like people are just constantly filling their time with shit that is like low value and is not pushing their life forward. If you're in that state, it doesn't matter how much I tell you to like prioritize physical and mental health because you don't really have a, a purpose for like how you want to spend your time. The first thing that I'd say is get off social media, do a detox, get like reduce the amount of dopamine you're dumping every day and like really think about like what you want out of life. What's making you not happy? What's making you happy? And then journal about it and try to figure out like what's wrong. Maybe that means you come up with life values. Maybe that means that it's just like as simple as like fixing something else that you know you need to deal with. But I think getting as close to that state as possible is probably the right answer. Just those two journal prompts are really, really relieving because I'm kind of in this place of like a big transition. My my wife is graduating grad school and we're getting ready to figure out the question of what is home? Is it DC? Is it another place? Which is its own, like, like you said, moving also kind of preempts an existential crisis of who are you and where do you belong in the world, especially in, in a full remote context. And so just the question of what makes you happy and what makes you not happy are seem like really simple distinctions. Are there other journaling questions that have been powerful or transformative for you as you've gone through this really contemplative practice? I think the honestly for me the the most powerful things were to it was to just establish a framework of dealing with negative emotions because I I think the people that are looking for powerful journal prompts probably have some sort of like significant emotional void in their life that if they just like thought about the things that made them feel bad or made them feel aimless or made them feel bored, that would be enough. That will be the most impactful thing that you can write about outside of any prompt. And so the the framework that I have for journaling is like, okay, there's this thing that I'm like emotionally dealing with that I don't know how to make sense of, or I don't trust that I'm going to make the best sense of it just off the top of my head. Okay, like, let's write about that. And I'll start writing about it. And then I'll start hypothesizing why it might be. And it's kind of meandering. It's like I'm exploring a forest of hypotheses. And a lot of times I'm like, oh, that's wrong. That's wrong. Or like, that doesn't feel right. Or half of that feels right. And so if you read my journal entries, it's like, it's an exhausting read. Like it would make a terrible book, right? Because you're like, just get to the point. But that's kind of the problem is that I think the people who need like really powerful journal prompts above anybody else the most important thing they could do is to start to talk to themselves about the problems they have in their life and get used to being like very honest with yourself. Because the truth is, is that 
If you're not doing this, you're probably not very honest with yourself. When you start, you're probably telling yourself a bunch of things that are only half truths. And that's okay. Like, it's okay if like you write things down, you're like, that doesn't feel exactly right. And you don't have enough mental capacity to like really think about it again, table it and come back to it tomorrow. Um, it is exhausting to journal this way because you're like making yourself think about these things that are like stored in your subconscious. And so the most powerful prompt you could possibly do is to just think about the things that are causing you the most turmoil. It might be like someone at work that you really don't get along with and like it's just not working out. And it's like, start talking about that. Start talking about how does that make you feel about work? How does that make you, it, it's basically armchair therapy for yourself, right? I think that's like really the most impactful thing you could do by maybe three orders of magnitude. The other journal prompts are like, once you start getting clarity about the ways that your life are fucked up, then you start to be like, I know that my life is messed up because I don't have purpose and I need values. Okay, what are great journal prompts for trying to figure that out? The first step that most people need to take is to just start talking to themselves about like what's going wrong in their lives. And most people don't do that. Not a fact. Well, I certainly didn't. I, I continue to not to. I, I'm still on that journey, you know? Powerful, a powerful distinction. As we've been in our conversation, there's a couple distinctions that have stood out to me. Uh, one was the Philosoraptor journal and like making that really fun. The other was in reviewing some of your, your tweets, there was a distinction that I, I picked up on or up becoming a reader versus reading and then stacking your books, like the books that you've read next to your bedside. And so these are like, it seemed like very nuanced, intentional choices that you made to help reinforce some of these habits and to make them fun. So can you tell us a little bit about like your process for building new habits or how you think about building new habits to help people get out of some of these states where they feel stuck in a rut or filling their time with things that suck? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a great, it's a great, it's a fantastic question, actually. And the answer is going to be different for everybody. I think the things that I've found to be really powerful is there's probably like the habits that you want to build, you're not going to want to do them. This is something that everybody knows, like, I could throw out the cliche of like, read atomic habits, like that's a piece of advice that many people give. It's not necessarily interesting, um, at least in my opinion. The thing that's really interesting to me is like, when you know that you have to do a certain set of habits, like, just like really push yourself to do them. And then also try to absorb the mentality that your emotions are going to need to have very little to do with like what you actually do in your life. I think there's like a lot of narratives where it's like, we're kind of in this culture online where it's like, I don't know what how else to put it. It's just a victim culture. We have a lot of people online who talk about, oh, like that must have been really hard. I get why like you're disadvantaged and you couldn't do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, ultimately, if you adopt that mentality, you're fucked. You're totally screwed because like basically what you're saying is like, there are cases where it's okay for me not to take ultimate responsibility over my own life. And I mean, the truth is that responsibility isn't something you take. It's like a state of being. Like you can't not be responsible. It is impossible. Down to the atomic level, the blood in your body moves based on the waves of the moon. You have the ability to respond at all points and you will because you live in the system. And so it's really important that people create some mental rigidity. I think that's like the most important piece of information I could give to the most number of people listening to this that might be applicable. When you're trying to build habits, you need to be mentally rigid. Like there needs to be a part of you that's like, no, I'm gonna do this. I know it's gonna suck. I'm doing this for my future self. And then you need to balance that with, okay, if I said I was going to do it five days out of the week, but then I did it four days out of the week. Look, I already did it four days. That's four more days than I was doing it over last week. Let's focus on the positive and try to hit five this week. So there is like a part of it that's like push yourself forward by focusing on how much progress you've made. And then if you stop making as much progress, then get more mentally rigid. But first get mentally rigid. I think a lot of people are like really 
quote unquote burnt out. I don't know how much I believe that in different spheres of, of online. I think we've been blaming the pandemic for far too long. It's like, when are you going to take responsibility of your life? If you want me to be like completely honest, I haven't had zero casualties personally within the pandemic. So, you know, everybody can blame things in, in a different way, shape or form. But I think you just have to take ultimate responsibility over your life or you're always going to be miserable. And that's the first thing I'd say, because I think there's active narratives that try to go against that and try to make it okay to be emotionally flexible. And when you're trying to change yourself, you have to be emotionally rigid. You have to be able to say, no, I know this is a good direction that I need to go in. And my brain is going to be telling me not to do that. And I need to tell that part of my brain to F off. Like, it's just not serving me anymore. That's really the best piece of advice I could give there. Because other than that, yeah, like create like a place where you're tracking your habits to try to do like 1% more week over week, whatever. Like those are all the like obvious boring things. The really hard thing is like, just do it. And when your emotions come in, you have to set up systems for you to basically remove your emotions. Emotions are not a place where like progress happens because progress happens from habits and habits cannot be based. If your habits are based off your emotions, you're not going to make consistent enough and long enough progress to reap the benefits. It's also cliche advice. I don't really have good advice here because I feel like the only advice is really boring and it's just like really hard. It's like, just got to do it, you know? Well, I think the the process of recognizing emotion and acting despite of that is something that is not talked about, or at least folks are, are less familiar with. For sure. And the last thing that I'll say, just based on your point of like stacking books and all that stuff, like you're doing this because you want to make yourself more proud of yourself in some way, or you want other people to be proud of you. Like if you're saying you're only doing it for yourself, that is bullshit. Like anybody who's like, oh, like I just run a marathon, but it's just for me. It's like, <laughs> all right, sure. Maybe like if you're like the Dalai Lama or something, it's like, we all make decisions to progress ourselves in order to gain the respect of other people and in order to gain the respect of ourselves. Things like stacking books in my place, like trying to make my place a place that's conducive to inspire me to like do better work, trying to do things like run that marathon. And then like adopt, I adopt phrases like we have a group text thread with some of my friends. And like, I have this phrase now where I'm like, every man is the architect of his own fortune. And I say that anytime my friends say something weak, and that's like my only response. <laughs> and it's like, I'm doing all this stuff to like inspire, right? And like, I, I think that part of inspiration for me, and it might not be for other people is to make things fun. You know, like when I use words like philosopher, or I use like memes to like cut really tense conversations between me and other people at Loom, like, yeah, you got to make it fun too. Like you have to figure out your own way of like making it fun and making your own adventure. That's great. We've got five rapid fire questions for you, Vinay, if you're ready to get into them. Let's do it. All right. Speaking of books, what are you reading or listening to right now? So right now, I don't have the book with me right on this table. It's upstairs. I'm reading The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt. It's part of a three-part series of Teddy Roosevelt, who's just a, kind of an insane, amazing person. Like, to give you context, he had his gun wrestled away from him from two people as he was, like, exploring the West, and then literally hand-to-hand -hand combated a bear, got his gun back, and shot the bear. And, like, so, like, he's just, like, a, <laughs> an insane person. You know, like when you, when you think of like people that are insane and the life that he lived and like the family and pedigree of family that he came from is also just like, it's so rare to be born in that circumstance. So I'm reading The Rise of Teddy Roosevelt. I'm also, I'm listening to uh, Radical Candor, which is like a book that obviously many people in tech have read or listened to. I, I've never read it. So I'm, I'm listening to it for the first time. And then I'm juggling that with Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willing. And I usually listen to my audiobooks when I when I go on runs. Jerry loves extreme ownership. Radical candor. Kim Scott has done some cool stuff through ELC as well. So, okay. I know we got a few, a couple minutes left. So a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you. 
I mean, like, generally speaking, I think psychedelics are a tool, and that's had a huge impact on me. I wouldn't blanket statement recommend them to everybody. They're, they're a dangerous tool. But that is like, if, if I had to be honest, you know, like my last trip, I would describe as the single most important thing that's happened in my life other than being born. Like, honestly, the simplest framework is like, if you just do shit, shit happens. Like, I think a lot of times we just get stuck in ruts where we're not doing as much and we're like caught in our thoughts, especially as engineering leaders and just doing stuff leads to magic. And so if you feel like you're kind of stuck in a rut, you could literally do anything and you'll probably just switch up the world a little bit. Um, so those two, that first tool and then that framework. Most meaningful in-person experience with your team, company, or otherwise? I don't know if it's the most meaningful, but I thought it was very meaningful. When we had first started scaling the pandemic, all of our systems were underwater. It was a pretty crazy time for a lot of roommates. People were scared about losing family members, and people were being worked around the clock every single day, no days off, because all of our systems were going down. When we made it through that period and our systems were scaling and we were able to give people time off, there was like, at least across like engineering support products, there was this sense of just like, we had been through some real shit just now. And like, you come out on the other end and you're still in a pandemic. So it's like, things aren't great, but like we did something together. And it also felt like we had been through this strange journey that maybe not many people going through the pandemic, which is like an entire human shared experience, We've been through this shared thing that was like very special to us as Lumates. And so that was a really special moment as, as an engineering leader. Making it through that moment was, was particularly tough. Final one to send us off to, to wrap up our conversation, Vinay. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or that really res is resonating with you right now? I think I already said it before, but I'll, I'll say it again, which is, uh, you know, every person is the architect of their own fortune. And if you haven't gotten to a place where you've accepted that yet on some level, like life is going to be very hard for you until you do. That's really the mantra that's like running through my head right now. But I am kind of like a person of extremes. So I'm sure in like a year, like a year later, like it'll be something else. So that's it right now. Every person is a, the architect of their own fortune. Vinay, thank you so much for your time and conversation with us. It was an absolute blast. Jerry, you want to jump in and say anything? This is by far the deepest conversation we have had in terms of the so many aspects to digest and, and dig into. So appreciate coming back and taking time and, and being really open to all the questions we have. Totally. Thanks for having me on. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups and other programs that are going on. Head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.